Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah, they have asked for that, really. France are going to the World Cup. Get over This fellow Ronaldo is a cod. Boom, 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 it follows. Boom, 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 it follows. Ah, that's actually a After I use mindy language. And I suggest you shut up and show more football. Good lad. I don't throw teacups. It's not my style. I think I'd rather throw punches. What you doing down here, you showing man? <laughs> You're very welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast. We're one week away from the start of the World Cup. And while it may be a slight exaggeration to say the wheels are falling off the English bandwagon, there are enough signs there, Ken, I put to you, mm-hmm. to suggest this is not going to be their year. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever could make you uh, think that, Owen. Well, I watched the friendly last night for Sarah Ken against Ecuador, yeah. and I noted an absolute lack of defensive cover in case of any injuries or suspensions during the tournament, particularly at full-back. They were a little bit exposed last night. Wayne Rooney is again going into World Cup <laughs> totally unfit and completely out of form. Yeah. He scored a goal. He he took a goal from Ricky Lambert in the way that Robbie Keane took Noel Hunt's goal against Italy all those <laughs> years ago last night. Other than that, he missed a few chances and looked very rusty. And today is talking about how he doesn't care what journalists think. He's given up on that a long time ago, which is probably <laughs> fair enough. But that's another. Roy Hodgson. Yeah. This is my. So we've got lack of defensive cover. Wayne Rooney. Just, just the whole Rooney conundrum. My third reason is that Roy Hodgson is getting a little ratty with the media. Yeah. And this ties into my fourth issue. And the, the reason that's important before anyone says who cares about the media, I, I understand that point, but it doesn't help if already relations... Because Hodgson, I think, is reasonably popular. He certainly doesn't ruffle feathers. And nobody. I don't think anyone hates Roy Hodgson or anything like that. But if relations are starting to sour even a small bit at this point, still a week away from the tournament, what happens if they lose the first game? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that does translate then to how he's viewed by the public at home. Siege mentality kicks in. That may go one of two ways. In the process of him getting a little bit tetchy, he managed to slag off one of his best young players. That's point number four. You shouldn't really talk about a guy like Ross Barkley, mm-hmm. the best young talent in England probably, and try to, by trying to keep his feet in the ground, manage to actually insult his performance. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was a little bit strange. And lastly, Ken, my last, I don't know, five or six at this stage, my last reason is ketchup. Go on. Well, what, ke- what's wrong with ketchup? Ketchup is the reason. Quite a lot, Ken. I would say there's quite a lot uh, wrong with ketchup. Go, it wouldn't be the staple yeah. of any great diet. But um, Dominic Fifield is writing in The Guardian yeah. saying Ben Foster has confirmed tomato sauce is now firmly back on the menu having been banned in South Africa four years ago yeah. by Fabio Capello. The sauce is a sore point, but we are allowed it now 
and butter as well, <laughs> yeah. says Foster. England is doing a lot of boasting about their massive backroom team and their psychiatrists they have over there and their nutritionists, but their tactics sound eerily similar to Ireland at USA 94. Wear loads of layers in the heat, yeah. sweat it out of you, and then eat some butter and tomato sauce afterwards. <laughs> Lose a huge quantity of body weight in the form of sweat and then stuff yourself with uh, high-fat foods. You know the name of their head chef, right? No. He's the West Ham chef. His name is Tim Death. I'm not saying a word. There's, R- there's an apostrophe between the E and the A. Tim Death. The bathos of that Tim <laughs> for the word death. It could be Death. I haven't checked. Death. Death. Oh, it's, it's got an apostrophe. It does have an apostrophe, Ken, but it's near enough as makes little difference. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what about my overall theory? You think I'm jumping to a lot of conclusions based on flimsy evidence? No, and I think there's a compelling pattern of evidence emerging there that uh, there are some problems there. Um, I think the big problem that they have actually is uh, is Hodgson, you know. I mean, he's not going to do what they all want, which is just to play the exciting young players and, you know, just have at it. That's all they want. It's literally the only thing that, the, that, would, that could make them happy. Just have a go because it's, you know, they know that they're not really going to, you know, this sort of guys who've been there before are not really going to, we've already seen that they're not going to do it. You know, um, Sterling, Barkley, those guys are the ones that the English fans, I think, want to see. And they are particularly good this time. Yeah. I, it, there have been other times where there's been a clamour for young players, but this group is the best they've had for a while, I think. Yeah. And you might as well give them a chance. Yeah. Absolutely. But, but Hodgson won't, because there's a big difference between his the way that he looks at it and the way that... Uh, English fans would look at it and the way that I'd say elements of the English media would look at it which is that for them it's like the World Cup I mean in the latter groups it's the World Cup it's hopefully going to be a good time but for Roy Hodgson it's going to be the defining moment of his career mm-hmm. and he will be either some kind of you know he, he will see his face on some on some sort of root vegetable uh, or he well, actually, really, that's what's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> There's no need for an oar. So Hodgson is, is going to end up uh, being kicked around. You've got you've got all Roy to kick around. That's that's what he's going to be feeling by the end of this uh, World Cup. Um, would Harry Redknapp approach it any differently? I he's don't know because because ultimately, it's a, the manager is always going to be under this this type of pressure. For it's 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 difficult for the manager the manager of England to take that more disinterested view, like, yeah, let's just give it a lash, you know, and see how it goes. And sure, maybe we'll end up, our, our inexperienced team will be taken to the cleaners by Pirlo. Um, yeah. And then you start thinking about that. Mm, maybe maybe my inexperienced players will be outfoxed by these Uruguayans. We could be out after two games. Mm. Suddenly then playing the youngsters and look so clever. What if we go for a nil-nil against Italy? You know, again, another draw against Uruguay and target that Costa Rica game you know, bore our way into the second round. At least we'd be in the second round, you know? What kind of root vegetable am I going to be superimposed on then? So that, that's the way the manager immediately starts to think once the pressure is on him. So he, it makes the manager more and more risk-averse, which is exactly, I think, what England don't need at this point. It's just... It, but I, I can understand how it happens. I mean, what's happening there, you, you mentioned that Rooney... Uh, says he, journalists can say what they like. The quotes from Rooney are: "I'm not really interested." This is because people are claiming Rooney should even be in this team. You know, what's he? He's just kind of not playing well. There's better players in better form than him. Uh, a lot of people have their opinions, but I listen to people around me in the coaching setup. I don't listen to people outside the setup really. So anyone journalists can say what they want. I have got no interest in listening to them. So you can shove it, 
McDavid. I know I, I, what you were saying earlier. You can just forget about it. Asking but his former teammate Paul Skulls. His former. Well, this is the thing. Is Paul Skulls a journalist? Is Gary Lineker to be considered a journalist? He's also the top goal scorer for England in the history of the World Cup. Ten World Cup goals, a World Cup Golden Boot winner. Is he just the journalist? Gary Lineker uh, commentates, in my opinion, quite brilliantly on the England games on Twitter. Uh, Ro- uh, Sterling for Rooney, anyone? Was his uh, suggestion at one point during the Friday last night. And that's what that's really what the journalists then take to Rooney and say, oh, by the way, you know, have you, have you noticed this? So I don't know if you can dismiss Gary Lineker as just a journalist. I think he's probably someone who knows what he's talking about to an extent. Lineker was one of the contributors to a show that said, you should have listened to it. It's one of the Radio 5 Live, BBC Radio 5 Live sports specials. They podcast a lot of their programs. And this one was about penalties. Ben Littleton was one of the contributors. We spoke to Ben a couple of weeks ago on the book that he's brought out, which studies... He's spoken to one, at least one player on every team that's beaten England in major tournaments yeah. on penalty shootouts. Anyway, this had a load of contributors, Dave O'Leary and Packy Bonner among them. Yeah. Uh, Owen Hargreaves is probably the best of them, actually. Hargreaves had just, a, a, maybe unsurprisingly, as a sort of German Englishman, yeah. a guy who, who's a foot in both those camps, he had a really great insight into specifically his penalty against Petr Cech and Chelsea in their Champions League final. But Gary Lineker was spoke the way he played. He yeah. almost spoke in such an ice-cold way uh. about taking penalties, but uh, he blamed Chris Waddle for the <laughs> for losing in Saturday 90. He, uh, he blamed maybe the rest of the team for not stepping up. Four of them, really, including Stuart Pearce, four of them really wanted to take it. Yeah. So it was him, Stuart Pearce, Peter Beardsley, yeah. and one of the other players you would have expected. I can't remember who it was at the time. Trevor Stephen, maybe? Then no, I don't think it was Trevor Stephen. But then they're looking around just for a fifth. Come on, we're all professional footballers here. Yeah. Surely somebody else will step forward. Nobody did, so eventually Bobby Robson said, Chris, you're taking one. Yeah. And Chris Waddle just had uh, no chance. Just oh, decided to go to blast it as hard as he possibly well, can. Well, I wouldn't necessarily blame Waddle. No, I, I, it's harsh for me to say even that Lineker blamed Although Waddle, Lineker was a man who, who was never shy of letting people know when they were to blame for England getting knocked out. I mean, there was yeah. Terry Fennick, uh, famously, was was taken to pieces by Gary Lineker in the draft. Gary never was booked Lineker. Uh, was apparently screaming blue murder at Terry Fennick. Why didn't you just take him down? Maradona, you know, his job was to stop Maradona. And he and if you watch Maradona go through on the edge of the box, Terry Fennick pulls out of the challenge. Gary is going, you've got to take him down there. You've got to do your duty for England. He said that publicly. No, he said it in the dressing room. Oh. <laughs> he didn't say publicly. It's not, the kind of thing, <laughs> not the kind of thing he says in public. But he let Terry Fennick know that he considered England's agony to be entirely his fault. We'll talk to ESPN's John Bruin about the, our theories on England. And we'll chat about Spain's chances with Miguel Delaney because, well, they're my favourites for the tournament. They're, they're not necessarily Ken's. We'll start with Kennedy's report on sport. Yeah, I mean, we've got to that Spain issue. I, I want to mention one last thing on the England thing. Paul Scholes' column came out today <laughs> um, with the well-known bookmaker. Uh, and he's got a theory as to what ha- what needs to happen. Did he shout it through his Italy. megaphone? Oh, he's there with the megaphone, all right. So uh, the, when Scholes roars, the world sits up and listens. This megaphone fad seems to be gathering pace, Ken. I'm sorry to cut across yeah. here, but I saw a, I think it was an Aircom photo shoot yesterday, and there's... One of the greatest skating footballers of all time, Colin Cooper, with a real megaphone in the stands in Croke Park, <laughs> shouting his point across. Really? With like Mickey Hart, maybe, and somebody else sitting in the trenchant views. Yeah, trenchant views. Searing honesty. <laughs> Searing honesty through, through that megaphone. Through that megaphone. Um, <laughs> in this case, what Paul Scholes is saying 
is the key to playing against Italy is to man mark Andrea Pirlo and it refers to a match uh, Manchester United against AC Milan when they didn't man mark him and he destroyed them I think it was 2007 the 3-0 um, in the San Siro and he said we knew then if we're playing against this team again this is what's going to happen so that's what the what Ferguson came up with was putting Park Ji Sung as, as Pirlo referred to in the first nuclear powered submarine uh, nuclear powered submarine nuclear powered South Korean <laughs> um, uh, he, Pirlo didn't like it you know he's saying this guy you know he was a famous footballer and yet he consented to be used as a guard dog you know chasing me around biting my ankles no interest in it. he's looking at the ball what is that this is what Pirlo wrote disparagingly of, of uh, Park in his recent autobiography point is though that Manchester United won the tie 9-2 Pirlo didn't barely got a kick apart from all the ones he got from Park <laughs> so Skulls are saying this is what needs to happen but what does Paul Skulls suggest as to the, the way to uh, to do that he suggests who, who would be the candidate you'd put forward? To man mark? To man mark Pirlo. We're talking about an England player from that squad. I'm trying to... Well, there a lot, most of their midfield. I don't see any of their midfielders really being up to task. Gerrard, Lampard, Wheelchair. So, in that case, you'd have to be looking at one of the... The centre-halves? One of the, the centre-halves to man mark Pirlo. Pirlo's going to play behind the Italy midfield. Sure, yeah. But, well, it's a long a, way a forward reserve, for a centre-half. Well, a reserve centre-half. I don't mean that you, you take out... I mean one of the centre-halves in Phil this Jones spot. or something like that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> double task. Um, um, okay, so you're talking about taking... Uh, not James Milner. Well, Milner, no. That's, Milner's not the man that he uh, that he suggests anyway. Who did he go for? He went for Danny Welbeck. Oh. Danny Welbeck, take it. Welbeck's a big, strong lad, who, full of running, who's good at nicking the ball. Uh, get those telescopic, rubbery legs around... Uh, Pirlo, uh, get uh, get Welbeck running after him, and that'll annoy him and irritate him, and hopefully he'll come out with silk and not be able to perform. Of course, if Welbeck is playing in a behind the striker, sitting on Andrea Pirlo, that doesn't leave any room for Paul Scholes' former um, club mate Wayne Rooney, unless I suppose you're going to drop Sturridge for a centre forward. Maybe maybe that is what Scholes would do. He doesn't refer to it, but I just thought it was interesting that you know Rooney's position in this team. Is the behind the striker? Uh, is, is the role behind the striker? And if Welbeck was doing that against Pirlo, then that means Sturridge is not, not Sturridge is nailed on, though possibly more nailed on than Rooney. Well, I wouldn't necessarily say that. Actually, no? I mean, whether or not he deserves to be is a different question. But I, I, I think that Hodgson is a little bit Italianate. Uh, he played in his f- in the first team essentially in the last friendly. I'm sure he'll play in this next one. Got a nice goal. Mm. He's hardly going to leave Sturridge out. Of I wouldn't say he'd, I wouldn't say he'd want to, but I think the idea is Sturridge up front and Rooney behind. So I yeah. don't think he's going to be taking the skull suggestion of Welbeck uh, behind to, to mark, mark Pirlo. It might be Rooney having to mark Pirlo, which I don't think Rooney's particularly good at. Mm-hmm. Really, no. you know, he's he's not. I don't think he quite still has the engine for that. I mean, Ferguson used to get annoyed with him when he he would ask him to do that. Yeah, in the Champions League final, I think in 2011, he got really angry with Rooney, who, who remember scored and seemed to have quite a good game. But Ferguson wasn't happy with it because he his job was to be uh, disrupting the midfield of Barcelona and, and Ferguson felt he didn't do it. Anyway, um, I have a question for you, Ron. Sure. How much money would you be prepared to pay for Ireland to win the World Cup? Wow. Yeah. You personally, how much money would you pay? Now, of course, this is difficult for you because you've got to strike the balance between displaying your passion and sounding a bit Marie Antoinette-ish. When you say that you'd spend, I don't know, how much would you spend? Is this a straight fee? Yeah, you, you pay a straight euros fee. I mean, how much would you, would you prepare to, to stump up 
to see Ireland win the 2014 World Cup. Am I going to be at the World Cup? Am I going to be in Brazil? Do I get... Can I answer this by saying that I'd... It doesn't matter. I'd be prepared to spend whatever... Say the eight or 9,000 euro that it costs to get over to Brazil, stay in the really expensive hotels, fly in the really expensive airplanes and see Ireland beat Brazil in the World Cup final. Is your answer eight or 9,000 euro? Eight or 9,000 euros. <laughs> uh, let them eat cake. Uh, I think that is... Uh, that's that's a, that's well. Look, you you're a man who really loves his national team. It's a once in a lifetime opportunity. <laughs> you, really, you really love your national team, because looking at the results here from the Wall Street Journal survey, uh, that's considerably in excess of what anyone <laughs> is prepared to pay on average. And I mean, I'm sure there were individuals. I'm sure Roman Abramovich would, would be prepared to pay eight or nine thousand euros to see Russia win the World Cup. I'd say he'd probably pay more. So it's 15 to 20 grand, I'm sure. The average Russian, however, will will stump up no more than 154 euros to see their national team. That is, this is just incorrect because how many player, how many people spend 500 euros just to see, just, how many people spend loads of money actually? You wrote about this in your Irish Times preview of the, of England's chances in the supplement yesterday about the 50,000 or so English people that went yeah. over to, was it Germany or Portugal? Germany, yeah. Most of you weren't even going to get a ticket. Euros. Yeah, uh, pay 500 to get a ticket or just pay the few thousand euro it takes to go over there and just be around success. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Literally so, just to be present in the same I don't city. Be- I don't believe that Russian number for a start. Uh, the, it goes in, in order from the United States, uh, where people on average are willing to part with 37 euros to see the US win the World Cup, uh, all the way up to Chile, where people are willing to stump up 526 Euros, Argentina, Italy, and Chile are, are the only ones where you, you've got over four hundred quid. Your people are prepared <laughs> I really to pay. Am in excess. Then Australia, Australia quite high, one hundred and seventy-six. The United States lowest, thirty-seven, and Netherlands next, thirty-nine. Spain jaded by success, eighty-four euros, and Belgium ninety-one. I suppose Belgium isn't really, even really a country. England ninety-five. I think the English would pay more. They just <laughs> it just hurts them to admit how much they want to win this World Cup that they are afraid they're never going to win again. Yeah. Anyway, um, the other question on was something which came up uh, recently. I can't remember talking with, about where you would celebrate. In the, okay, you know the way in, in Madrid uh, when they win a football tournament of some kind, there's this big celebration at the Cibeles, um, uh Fountain in Madrid. I think it's for, that's for Real Madrid. And then if uh, Atletico win, is it Neptune or something? I can't remember. There's another almost identical fountain sort of down the road where, but they've got these sort of public spaces which are almost, uh, which are taken for granted. That's where everyone is going to go if something big happens. Where is that place in Dublin? Well, for me, Ken, in this scenario where Ireland have won the World Cup, I'm afraid I'd have gone to ground by this stage because you, the credit unions and the <laughs> banks would be on to me for this eight or nine grand. That you owe them, yeah. Yeah, and also there would be a, some sort of investigation into how this money was used and funneled through to the organise of the World Cup to yeah, allow to, Ireland to, in. Yeah, to, to get to the relevant FIFA insiders uh, and the referee, the way the referee punched that corner into the net <laughs> in the final to, to win that World Cup final. Failing that, where is, yeah, I don't know where the big... I don't know, I mean, a friend of mine was, said, well, remember the 1990 video which showed people, people gathered at the Walkinstown roundabout, <laughs> to, ce- roundabout yeah. to celebrate the win over over uh, Romania. It doesn't quite have the the um, elegance, I suppose, of uh, that fountain in Madrid. But it, it also struck me that it's been so long since we had a national celebration of that type in this sad little country that, I, I don't know, it just hasn't happened. The Phoenix Park seemed to be where the homecomings were in... Certainly in 2002, maybe even in 94, it could have been out in Phoenix Park. Yeah, I'm not sure. Pretty sure it was. 1990, of course, and 88 was 
all around Dublin really you can but uh, largely around College Green and elsewhere in College the, Green, Dublin yeah. City Centre uh, I mean of course it's, Dublin's not the only place I mean there are other, there are many cities uh, where would it be in Galway Carol? Air Square Air, Air Square Air Square so he knew immediately I don't know I don't well know. we're just naming the central areas of each <laughs> the most populous uh, certainly the most visited areas it's probably not a problem that we're going to have to confront in the immediate future in any case eventually we've got some time to think about it uh, Michelle Patini has had some things to say about this whole um, uh, fiasco surrounding Qatar driven by the Sunday Times revelations uh, from the weekend uh, he has actually said something quite interesting which is that if corruption is proven it will take a new vote and sanctions um, now he's, he's a guy who actually voted for Qatar we assume not for corrupt reasons he just voted for them because he thought they were the best bid uh, there's no no question. There's no emails from Michel Patini saying, "Oh, Mohammed, Mohammed bin Hamad, great to see you looking so well. Here are my bank details." Um, so he just thought, "Great idea, Qatar. You know, the, these they're investing. They're going to invest so much money in Paris Saint Germain. It's wonderful, wonderful for football. Uh, good idea to have the World Cup there." But he's now saying, "If corruption is proven, um, then then let's let's have a revote on this." Um, he was a little bit annoyed though about some stories which were, uh, appeared in some of the papers, a lot of the English papers, in which they said Platini had meeting, secret meeting with Mohammed bin Hamam. You know? Uh, and then the, the implication being, as Platini says, I woke up one morning and read, is Platini corrupt in all the papers on the agency feeds and on blogs? Honestly, it hurts. I'm transparent. I said for whom I voted and I find myself suspected of corruption. It's ridiculous. Now, it is ridiculous because there's nothing in any way unusual about Michel Platini, the president of UEFA, meeting with Mohammed bin Hamam, who was, you know, hugely important member of the, you know, was, was he the president of the Asian Football Confederation? And he's, he was on the he was FIFA, FIFA executive, executive committee. Why wouldn't he meet this guy? You know, he's a, he's a colleague. So there's nothing nothing untoward about that whatsoever, apart from the sort of innuendo of, well, we all know what kind of things Mohammed bin Hamam used to talk about when he met with people. Um, One of the... But there's more to the Platini story than that. Is it not that his son also... Son works for Qatar Sports Investments. Happens to be employed with Qatar Sports Investments and <laughs> just generally he was, Qatar... He was, a, he was the best candidate Qatar, for the job. Qatar and France are getting on really, really well. 15 billion, 15 billion euros of direct investment into France over the last five years, I think it is, from Qatar. Which is a big, big sum of money. You're talking about, you know, that we're talking about some of money that's bigger than football. It's not a football issue here. It's a, it's a of national significance. You know, so it's, you know, good news for France, I suppose. It's great news for France and Qatar. They're getting on so well. Um, you know, Platini says, that colleague, I saw him 10,000 times in 15 years. Why would I have had a secret meeting from I realized behind this there was someone, something, people who organize all that. I feel it. I don't work like that. I think about football. Others think about other things. So... No way to say, no way to know who he's talking about here. But of course, Steph Platter is going to be standing for a fifth term as FIFA president, which I don't think Michel Platini is too happy with. He had kind of envisaged taking over by now. Doesn't look like that's going to happen. And now all these articles are emerging, you know, accusing him of stuff in the press. Um, he says uh, he becomes stronger when he's attacked. But he says, um, when someone asked him directly, do you think Steph Platter is behind the campaign? And he says, I'm like St. Thomas. I only believe what I see, <laughs> says, uh, says Platini. So he's a skeptic uh, and he's not willing to, to engage in conspiracy. You want to talk about Germany? Yeah, Germany, who are, who are playing a game tonight, an interesting game against, uh, against uh, Ar- Armenia. 
who remember are a weird little team. We played against them and actually had good results against them in the qualifiers for the Euros. Thankfully, they had good results against other teams they in their group. They smashed Slovakia to beat. You know, they went and they they happened. They're the kind of team who would just randomly hammer in four goals in a 15-minute blitz, you know? So, uh, a tricky kind of opponent um, and a tricky situation at the moment for the German team who, uh, remember, have been this kind of youthful, promising setup uh, for the last forever and actually now go to the World Cup as, as one of the most experienced teams there. I think Uruguay have the most caps in their squad. There's over a 1,000 caps in Uruguay because a lot of their players are, you know, like Diego Lugano, these guys, and Diego Forlan, pretty... Senior players, let's say. Uh, but Germany have nearly as many. You know, these, these guys have been on the go for a long time. And yet, mm, seem, cl- seem further away from being a really convincing team now than they were even at this time last year. It strikes me that maybe they've lost the precociousness that they, that they had maybe four years ago. And they haven't quite acquired what people in Germany hoped they would acquire. Which and that's the, the steady winning mentality. Knife between the teeth. You know, uh, they have this this whole preoccupation with the leader figure, leadership figure, um, who, who they call the Führungsfigur, as opposed to uh, the traditional word for a leader, which is Führer. Um, it doesn't get used so much in these contexts anymore. But you know, it's still a, a theme. You know, they, a guy who's just going to be more mad, you know, than than the other guys out there. He's going to go and just on the field. You're talking about. on the field. Yeah, he's just going to go and bully the opposition into uh, submission. And Germany used to have a lot of these type of players, but now they have Mesut Ozil. And it's just really interesting to, to hear how uh, people talk about Ozil. It's always the same thing. It's body language. It's what they talk about. Body language. Yogi Love was talking about he needs to improve it, you know. He's a great player, but when there's a setback, he needs to have better body language. Mikael Balak saying the same thing. You know, his body language is, since he moved to Arsenal is a disgrace. Well, you know, what's happened to him? I've never heard a player talked about in such terms. And if you analyse it closely... The best player in the world at the moment, well, actually, the second best player in the world at the moment, technically, Leo Messi. Mm. I wouldn't be blown away by little Messi's body language in a lot of cases. No. He slouches around a lot, looking s- sort of annoyed with his teammates. Yeah, he does. He certainly does. He often looks as though, this game's not for me. In the <laughs> same way Ozil does, but then he delivers, which just gives a lie to the idea that it, the body language matters in any way. But, you know, at the same time, they, they're looking for Ozil to be this dominant figure, you know, to sort of, I don't know, strut around, chest puffed out, jaw set sternly. I don't know. I don't know exactly what they're looking for from Ozil. I mean, he is, he is, he's not, he just doesn't look like uh, a guy who's going to bully the opposition. He just didn't, some guys just don't look like that. You know, he's, a, he, Germany used to have someone like Hans-Peter Briegel, who was a decathlete, and, you know, he's like a six foot three inch, 200 pounds of, of muscle. That guy was intimidating. He had good body language. He couldn't help it. He literally couldn't help it. Whereas Ozil... Uh, but but when, when I hear Joachim Love talking about the team, the qualities that he seems to be looking for are all... Are all okay, here he is. He's talking about uh, why he was making the decision on the squad. What's he looking for? What players can give you energy? What players can promote competition and stand up to competition within the group? Which players are tolerant of frustration when they don't play? Which players maybe are too egotistical? We're on the road with a large group for several weeks. I'm looking for respect, tolerance, discipline, reliability, integrity, humility, and ability to concentrate. If a player has flaws in these areas, the group suffers. It sounds to me like he wants guys who are going to get on with other guys. Yeah. You know, he, he, he wants sort of a well-adjusted, um, you know, group-oriented, you know, not exactly alpha male types, 
that we're talking about here. I mean, a, a lot of these German players of the past, the, the kind of reference points to look back to, were incredibly badly behaved. I mean, selfish, egotistic, egomaniacs. You know, guys who would think nothing of going and going to the press and selling out other teammates or and pointing out who they Effenberg thought. type. Effenberg. Effenberg didn't have much of a career with the national. He he took it too far when he gave the finger to the fans. That they just weren't prepared to put up with that. But Matthias, you know, would would be like that. You know, Beckenbauer. Beckenbauer, a guy who would think nothing of. Okay, guys, you know this this isn't working. You know, we've lost to East Germany in the the '74 World Cup. We've lost to East Germany. You know, but I'm I'm essentially going to take over the team now. Helmut Schön, you can remain on the bench as a sort of. Uh, cheerleader uh, and I'm, I'm happy to share the credit with you at the end but I am going to run this team from now on you know that's not the kind of player Yogi Love apparently wants in his squad but that's what they're what it's contradictory you know what I mean it's like on the one hand we want Ozil to go around and sort of boss everyone but on the other hand that's not actually what we want we want team players you know I don't I don't know it's, it's, it seems to me like they're a little bit confused um, on the way out a there. word on Luis Suarez a man who manages to combine the team ethic with a bit of alpha male. Yeah. I, don't know if, I don't know if it's necessary. Oh, definitely, yeah. Is yeah. that I, how you I, think so. I think so, yeah. But, you know, um, I was a bit confused. Oh, and I was left a, a little bit confused by Grant Wall, uh, Grant Wall of Sports Illustrated, who got an interview with Luis Suarez. And yeah. we, we were talking the other week about Wright Thompson's profile of Suarez, which Suarez didn't talk to him for. Uh, this is different. Suarez did talk to Grant Wall for Sports Illustrated. And, um, you know, they... Again, the, the whole everything wasn't really addressed. I mean, I didn't find Suarez's... Suarez actually starts talking, first of all, saying, I want to be thought of as a good man. You know, I don't want people... I'm, I'm tired of this image that I have, you know, and I don't want people to think that I'm that type of person. And that's what I'm trying to correct now. You know, that's what I'm trying to do. And, you know, they go on. They talk about it. In fairness, there's more attention given to it than, than there was in the Wright Thompson piece, which yeah, kind right. of just, just side sidestepped it. Um but Suarez says, "Look, my conscience is clear. You know, I didn't. I'm. I can live with what with what happens. You know, and he won't really say much else about it. But it strikes me the question is, why, if you want to be well thought of, if you are concerned about your image, which you never seem to be, um, didn't you just shake his hand? Didn't you just? Why didn't you just shake his hand? And I mean, maybe you know whatever else was going on in your head. Whatever. I mean, my theory about it is that Suarez didn't consider what he said." To Evra to to be unacceptable. I mean, to you know, he I, th- I believe he was wrong about that. But he considered the fact that Evra went and effectively ratted him out. You know, as, as he's looking at it to the authorities that he went and said this thing and brought it uh, brought this thing off the pitch into the spotlight to be a greater betrayal of his idea of what it means to be a sportsman than anything Suarez could have said to Evra on the field. That's the way that he looks at it. And so when the opportunity came to shake Patrice Evra's hand the next time they played, he refused to do it because he still had a grudge against Evra for that. And everybody knows that the... That the, that the that's just my speculation. Mm-hmm. You know, Suarez hasn't, hasn't talked about this. I think it would be interesting to put that to him. But um, if, I can't understand how you can say at once that you're concerned about your image. And then on the other hand, display absolute lack of conservative the Grant Wall thing though did confuse me on the count that I finished the piece and went I didn't realise that Ross Barkley had thrown a fan through a plate glass window so what? <laughs> that's exactly that was exactly my rush when did Ross Barkley throw a fan through a plate glass window this is in this piece? in the last paragraph turns out Owen it was Charles Barkley Charles Barkley who had been referred to I think a couple of paragraphs up Charles Barkley probably should have realized, but just in my Ross Barkley 
mania. Yeah. I thought, wow, that's amazing. I haven't heard about that at all. Google, Barclay, plate glass window, fan. This is well, some achievement by Roberto Martinez or maybe David <laughs> Moyes to keep that one. But it turned out it was Charles Barclay. Grant Wall, himself, Grant Wall himself was the subject of a, an interview on a fashion blog in which he was asked to describe how important his appearance is and what sort of clothes he'd be bringing to the World Cup so that he could stand out, he could impress the people he had to interview. And he talked about it in great detail. In fairness to Grant Wall, he made fun of himself afterwards in talking about this on Twitter yesterday. But the key seems to be, Ken, only bring one pair of jeans and never wash them. Yeah, just put the jeans in the freezer. Um, I don't know. I mean, what happens if you spill something on them? Will the freezer be enough? I think every so often you're going to have to except you're going to have to wash your jeans. And maybe bring a spare pair. I do look forward to Ken Early's World Cup style guide. That do you want me to, to, to do it? I think you could jot down a couple of things and we can see, talk see, as you go. Grant Wall explained that he was going to uh, to Brazil with a large case to carry his 10 to 12 shirts, three pairs of trousers, three pairs of shoes. Shoes custom made in Argentina, by the way. For his long feet, long broad feet. Long, long feet and... and uh, custom made shoes, uh, custom made, custom tailored jackets and shirts from India. Uh, clothes have come from all over the world to get into that suitcase. One giant suitcase to hold all that stuff, and then a carry-on, a smaller carry-on. But then you see, because he's working for like, uh, is it Fox or ESPN? Or? He's doing Fox as well. As so, the so you're talking, you're you're talking big budget land. So he's got <laughs> he's got a base in Sao Paulo where he can leave that big case and hang up probably a wardrobe where he can hang up all his clothes, and then quote. From there, he'll fly back and forth to game sites utilizing his carry-on. <laughs> so he'll just, whereas, uh, I'll tell you, unfortunately, I don't have a base as such. I'm a, a rolling stone. But I don't have one place which is going to be empty while I'm also staying in another place in a different city. I'm going to be just moving. So I will, on a couple of occasions, have to bring a giant case to... Uh, to World Cup matches. We'll talk more about this on Monday because we're going to grab you before you head off and travel over to Brazil on Monday to preview the World Cup and maybe kick off that style guide. All right, I'm already a quiver with anticipation on that one. That's the end of Ken Erdy's Report on Sport. I say I'm a million percent. That is better than a hundred percent. We're joined by John Bruin of ESPN. John, I think we want to talk about the England performance last night. They wanted a tough test. They wanted to play in difficult conditions. And they certainly got all of that. In that context, was it a good day for them against Ecuador? Would they be happy enough overall? I'm not sure whether... I think the game probably threw up more questions than answers, though I don't think that's uncommon for a pre-tournament friendly. Um, I think they were a little surprised how easy they found... Uh, Ecuador found it to attack them. Um, the big issue for me, um, beyond the, the attacking uh, trio, was that the defence was so poor. Um, and also the goalkeeper looked particularly panicky. Ben Foster looked a bit rusty at that level. Um, in front of them, in mitigation for Chris Smalling and Phil Jones, who I thought were both poor in the first half. Jones got better in the second. Uh, they weren't really provided much um, protection by the midfield. Jack Wilshire really doesn't look fit enough to play, and I don't think he does did well in the conditions. I thought Lampard played okay, but he's 36 in two weeks. So we can't expect much from that. I suppose the thing we do have to think is that this is a reserve team, 
But if Roy Hodgson's having to rely on his reserves in the World Cup, then there's quite a few alarm bells for me. Yeah, it's an interesting point, John, because he will have to rely on them in the World Cup if they're to go anywhere. Realistically, you're going to lose a player from injury. You're going to lose a player or two who might get suspended. So you might end up having to rely on James Milner to play right back, which is a frightening prospect based on last night's performance. (laughs) Yes, it is. Now, personally, I've always thought that James Milner would be capable of playing such a position because he is a very adaptable footballer. But I think what we realise there uh, is that playing fullback is not as easy as some people might believe it is. Now, the thing is, England have in their coaching staff uh, a guy who, uh, chatting through with some of my colleagues the other day, said that they thought he was the best ever England right-back, and that's Gary Neville, of course. Mm. Um, Glenn Johnson had a pretty poor performance against Peru, and then James Milner put in a far worse performance um, right back is suddenly a problem position. Now, personally, I've always thought England were okay at right backs, but they go into the World Cup and it, it does look the danger position. Um, Milner, I think, actually played in South Africa at some point as right back. And I know he's played against Belarus a few years ago. Don't remember him being quite as bad, quite as accident prone as that. Um, what did you make of Roy Hodgson after the match talking about Ross Barkley? I think everybody was quite impressed with. And Roy Hodgson says, well, he lost the ball an awful lot of times as well, which maybe uh, would have been better uh, chosen criticism had uh, Ross Barkley not also had a 91% pass completion rate from the match. I think what you've got there is um, Roy Hodgson is probably trying to dampen the hype. Uh, why, though? Why, why does Roy Hodgson always want to dampen everything? Are you new to Roy Hodgson? <laughs> Come on now. Who is this guy, Roy Hodgson? <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, I, I understand the the, uh, the idea. Okay, with like Mourinho said about I think Cole. A, I, I think, think it was a bit of a cack-handed attempt to do it, though, to be honest. You mm. have got a guy, oh, yeah. this guy's making his first start for England, wasn't he? Ross Barkley, he's shown so much promise, and it ends up that the manager essentially has a go at him after the game, which is no need to do. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I was just, funny, I was listening to Danny Murphy talk about playing under Roy Hodgson, and he was saying that, Hodgson was a great manager and he never really dished it out to his players in public. This followed that Barkley thing. I think, I think, I don't think there's any doubt that he was trying to temper what was being said there. There's also the point that with this Rooney Farago, whether Rooney should play or not, the obvious replacement for him is Barkley, and that's a you know, supposed in number 10 position. Uh, I don't think Barkley's going to start him announced. I don't think anybody believes that. Um, Barkley was excellent. I mean, he delivered the type of performance that anybody that's watched Everton this season would, you know, would know what he was all about. Um, I suppose that's the thing with Hodgson. I think, I think, funnily enough, um, chatting to some of the, the lads that have been out in Portugal and were off to Miami this week uh, with the England camp, um, it seems to be that there seems to be some sort of adversarial thing between him and the press now. Uh, Roy's getting a little tetchy. Has to do press every day. I know you lads have it, you know, with Martin O'Neill and Roy Keane. It's you know, it, it becomes a point where you sort of lose the sense of what actually is going on. It's more that they're trying to stop headlines being written and things like that. And I think in this case, Roy Hodgson probably might regret what he said on on Barkley. Yeah, the, yeah. The only the other reason that he might have. The other method that he was using or the the reason for using these methods might have been that 
who knows, Barkley could be a guy who lets things go to his head. And he, it's not just that he's trying to deflect the hype, but also he's trying to, to use a cliche, keep this kid's feet on the ground. But I don't know, judging by how he carries himself, Barkley, he seems just a hugely confident player, sure. But he seems like a natural enough guy. I don't, I don't know how much you know about him, John, off the field. But it, nothing that's happened so far in his professional career would lead, lead you to believe that this guy is going to uh, suddenly go off the rails. No, I mean the image that's portrayed by the, the club and the you know the, the, the very few media appearances done. You know the, the story last year, wasn't it, that he was catching, still catching the bus to training and stuff like that. Um, becoming a footballer in the sort of personality sense, okay, he's got the the, the, the arm tattoo, uh, but who doesn't these days? Uh, but um, yeah, I've never thought as Barkley is uh, a massive ego, but then again, then again. Didn't we think this about Wayne Rooney 10, 12 years ago? And uh, I don't think we can say that he's not got an ego these days, can we? Well, he says now that he doesn't care what anyone says about whether, no, no, whether no. he should be in the team. But whenever he kind of says that, you, you get the impression he's actually really annoyed to have people <laughs> questioning the fact that, you know, he should start when he has been, even under Roy Hodgson, um, you know, the top scorer in the squad. And, and he's clearly the senior player. Uh, I mean, himself and, and Steven Gerrard are the senior players, and he's got to put up with people questioning whether he should be in the team. So I guess the goal last night is a huge relief. But, I mean, are you... I mean, if you were Roy Hodgson, would you be saying, OK, Rooney, you're definitely going to start? I mean, I know Paul Scholes had this thing about, will England have the balls to drop Wayne Rooney if, if he's not performing? But the way I see it, surely he's he's got to at least start the tournament. Yeah, I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. Um, England managers tend to be conservative in their first choices of the tournament. I mean, I think back to 1998 when they played, uh, Glenn Hoddle fielded Teddy Sheringham and Alan Shearer when clearly Michael Owen was the, the guy that was going to score the goals for them. Um, I think with Rooney, I think weirdly enough, he played last night because uh, he wanted, um, Hodgson wanted him to get fit. I think we all know that the truism that Rooney needs to play games to get fitter. So it was pretty much a well, you can play, but you can play in a different position. But we'll get you playing, you build up match fitness that way. Um, I went to the Peru game last week, and I wasn't particularly impressed with Rooney. Fan, nobody was, of course. Um, he didn't seem to buy into this uh, idea that Hodgson is suddenly struck on of interchangeable forward players. Um, the thing is, though, <laughs> with Hodgson, he is risk averse, and the other problem is, you know, of course, if England all goes wrong and Wayne Rooney's been set on the bench then, you know, Hodgson is not someone to... He's probably going to find himself <laughs> under a deluge of that type of coverage, isn't he? Yeah, and I must say, watching the game last night, John, that I felt it was the first time I really noticed that Wayne Rooney suddenly looked old. And I know it's unfair because you're comparing him to all these <laughs> amazing young players who you haven't seen play much for England before. But you see Ross Barkley nutmegging people. You see Oxley Chamberlain making a couple of amazing runs. And, and all this is going on around, around Wayne Rooney, who... Missed a couple of handy enough chances and, in general, still doesn't look sharp. He certainly doesn't look young anymore. Yeah, exactly. But I think one of the problems we've got with Wayne Rooney is the player that he, he was as a, as a teenager. And I think it's unrealistic to expect Wayne Rooney at 28, having played over 500 senior matches at the highest level possible, to be a player like Ross Barkley. Because the problem... I suppose you've got is you see Ross Barkley and you see what Wayne Rooney was at Euro 2004 with those type of runs. Um, players get old, players get adapt, and I think Rooney has the ability to adapt. He's an intelligent enough footballer. He just seems to be having something of an identity crisis at the moment. 
Uh, I'm not sure Hodgson's the man to actually uh, change him up. I think you know you would expect that Ferguson would have been able to do so. He, in the end, he probably wasn't able to. David Moyes seems to kowtow to him. I wonder what happens with Louis van Gaal. But in England terms, yes. But as Ken said, he's a senior player. Um, but look at his record. Ten goals in the last 15 matches. Uh, England's he scored the most goals ever for an England player in World Cup qualifiers. Yeah. He's still the player that England have to look to. Yeah. Just one last quick question on uh, Raheem Sterling. He obviously got sent off last <laughs> night now. He maybe came into the tournament on a on some great weeks of form for Liverpool, but Hodgson was employing the same thing of, of sort of um, keeping his feet in the ground in a giant pair of lead boots after he came on in the friendly uh, last week and, and played quite well. And Hodgson said, well, you can't judge you can't judge a performance like that against guys who've been out there from the start playing against determined opposition. I mean, he essentially came on and just ran around against a team that wasn't even there. So, I mean, you know, yeah, he's still got to do more to impress me. Uh, when Sterling got sent off, did you see a bit of frustration in that? I haven't seen that side of his game uh, uh, when he's been playing at Liverpool, but maybe he gets the sense over there that really he's he's almost there as a squad mascot and he's pretty unlikely, maybe particularly after that red card, to, to do anything in this World Cup. Yeah, well, it's funny. He's going to miss the game against Honduras, isn't he, through a suspension. Um, you would expect would have expected he'd play in that game. I mean, I, I've got this, I had this, this view that Hodgson might be trying to be clever and sort of, you know, hide his secret weapon away, even though Italy and Uruguay have probably watched a bit of Premier League over the last season. Um, and then it's a plan that's backfired because that happened to Sterling, you know, becomes a victim of circumstance. I suppose the only thing to say, though, is with Oxlade Chamberlain's injury looking not so good, um, Sterling suddenly jumps further up in the queue um, and Hodgson might have to start been a bit nicer to Sterling um, because he's definitely a player of use to them and I think uh, what we did see from the positive thing from England last night is England do have players capable of running quickly with a ball counter-attacking well Sterling fits that bill perfectly um, and, I, and probably will have to do so in, in the absence of the Ox Yeah, John Bruin, brilliant stuff, thank you Cheers It's interesting that John compares Wayne uh, Ross Barkley to Wayne Rooney because I've seen him compared to quite a number of players in recent days Dietmar Hamann was saying that he reminds him of Stephen Gerrard yeah. in, no sorry he said Michael Ballack reminded him Michael Ballack it was my own head that had Stephen Gerrard in there there's a yeah. bit of the Gerrards about him as well um, the Rooney comparison is noteworthy because he's in the same England team as Rooney and poor old poor old Wayne just looks that bit older now yeah. uh, which well, he I, is I, th- I think he you know he, he that that impression is created when you see them in the same team. Exactly. Like, look at look at Barkley. I mean, I, I had that impression uh, watching the Merseyside derby uh, at, at Goodison Park during the season, where, which was a three-all and a great game. But Gerard was in midfield for Liverpool, obviously Barkley for and it. And I was looking at this game. Barkley to me looks like Gerard from ten years ago. I don't mean Gerard when he was Barkley's age, because Barkley's a lot stronger, a lot more powerful than Gerard was at that age. Gerard was still kind of spindly hmm. at that point, but he kind of he, he filled out a good bit. But certainly looking at him is like this guy is almost like a clown. Maybe he's got maybe he's more inclined to dribble. He's got a few more uh, tricks than Gerard ever tried. But yeah, it's it's true. It, it, he, John John used the phrase though that Roy Hodgson maybe is thinking Sterling is his secret weapon. Um, there was a comment from Gus Poyet a couple of days ago where he was being very dismissive. You're, Gus Poyet, obviously Uruguayan, being very dismissive about the English team. You know, England cannot invent. He starts off by saying, then he goes on lists a bunch of other reasons why they're no good. Um, but then he's like, you know, these guys, um, 
are not well known. These guys aren't known. No one in South America. Well, maybe Sterling a little bit because of Suarez. You know, effectively in South America, people watch Luis Suarez play and they're like, oh, who's that little guy? You know, he seems to get in the end of a lot of these balls. You know, he's, he seems quite good. So apparently Sterling is one of the only England players with any profile in South America, far from being a secret weapon. Spain are going for their fourth major tournament win in a row. Miguel Delaney joins us to talk about it and to preview them a little bit. Uh, I, Miguel, I have to say, I think Spain will win the World Cup. Ken doesn't believe so. Please tell me why, why I am right and he is wrong. Um, well, first of all, I think and I, suppose, I can see where Ken has come from the sense that, uh, you know, they've been succeeding for six years. Most cycles only last four. Um, and could I just... The natural thing with any team is that the intensity wanes and it's difficult to kind of replace players but keep the old balance. But, I mean, I think that's something that's also more true in club football than is international. Uh, I mean, one of the reasons I would still have Spain and to a lesser lesser extent Germany ahead of everyone is because ultimately uh, international football is still quite fractured. And because of every revolution they've made in their game, in in their games and their structures... Spain and Germany basically have a kind of cohesion that no other international side has. Allied to that, you have all this winning experience with Spain. If you look through the squad, there's still only three players over 31, although granted, there are two of them could be key players. But they're still a good bit. They're not, they're not even, their average age isn't even that high. Um, so many players are still playing at a usually competitive level. And I think they've added, provided he's fully fifth, they've added the kind of a necessary edge in Diego Costa. So, I mean... If you add all that together, I think they'll go very close. And I mean, really, for me, with Spain, it boils down to one question. It's it's not about being based in South America. It's not about Brazil or Argentina. It's you know, it's it's not about, uh, about the fact no team has returned to the World Cup since 1962 or any of that kind of history. It's basically just about whether they can get anywhere close to the level they are still capable of playing at. Ken, can you outline your rationale against that? Well, because I think that Xavi has been the most important player in the team for a long time, and uh, I don't see him anymore. When I watch Barcelona games, uh, he's gone, as far yeah. as I can make out. So if he's still going to be there, the, the central cog of the team, then I think the central cog is a little bit worn out. Well, I, th- I think there's two issues there. Like, you're right, kind of, uh, Xavi has, you know, he hasn't been anything like the player he was, and has kind of hasn't even featured in, in some contests where you would usually have him as indispensable. But... Um, First of all, part of that could be the fact he's saving himself. Secondly, he has been capable of, of raising it over the past season. And I think Del Bosque might use him sparingly. But there's also one other issue here. I mean, I think one potential issue with Spain over the past few years has been that, and it, it, it particularly came across between 2008 and 2010. I mean, if you remember the great debate about Spain, in 2008 they looked so exciting and were kind of ripping into teams. Then in 2010, they became the kind of minimalist side. They got so many of those one-nil draws, and the boredom debate started. I always suspected it was slight overkill to have both Busquets and Alonso, and then Xavi as the three midfielders. Previously, previously it was just Senna and then Xavi. Um, so you'd wonder whether that, if they use Xavi more sparingly, that could release him um, like that. Also, another issue is they got Coke, who we all know about Barcelona's interest in. Basically half of Europe's interested in at this point but I mean he is quite maybe not a ready-made replacement but someone who um, who is capable of uh, setting the tone in a similar way Well one of the other reasons I think that Xavi's role is less important now Miguel is just how well Iniesta has 
has done in recent seasons. And maybe he can't do everything that Jabby can do. Maybe not quite as metronomic in his passing and might not be as comfortable sitting where Jabby sits. But I was watching him again on Friday night against Bolivia and the guy is just absolutely incredible. And I would put it to you that maybe he's the heartbeat of the team now, not Jabby. Yeah, absolutely. And, and his age maybe would dictate that as well, given he's very much in his prime. And it's, it's something that's happened to Barcelona as well. And, and I think even if um, Iniesta doesn't sit in the manner that Xavi does, I think one of the issues with Spain in 2010 in particular, I remember it, it was such a debate after the Switzerland game, was that because they had Alonso and Busquets there, Xavi was pushed much too, fast for, much too far forward. So he wasn't actually sitting in the same way. And it kind of took Iniesta out of his natural position as well. So, you know... The loss of Xavi at his best might actually see Iniesta return to where he is best, which you know could boost him in another way and actually provide them with a little bit more um, attacking penetration. I, I think there's and there's maybe another issue here. Even if Spain can't play Xavi all the time and Xavi can't play to his accepted level all the time, I don't think it'll stop Spain playing the way they do. And if they do that, I, I think there's still a much wider issue, and it cuts back to the original point about how um, you know. They're, they're, Spain play like a club team in a way that no one on their international side does. And as a consequence, consequence of that, I think most international sides haven't really figured out a way how to properly play Spain yet. I mean, people will point to the, uh, to the Confederations Cup um, against uh, the trinal defeat to Brazil. But I think there's, there's a few things there. First of all, I think given Spain's success, I don't think they're ever going to be as intense or, you know, or apply the same intensity as they do in a normal competition. And, and I mean, almost proven that, there was a, a similar issue in 2009. They lost to uh, USA in the Confederations Cup semi-final. You know, weren't at their best level. But through that defeat, Del Bosque also kind of figured out things that were wrong with, with, the, uh, with the team and, um, and made a few tweaks. And also, there's the effect of um, the conditioning I mean, I interviewed David Silva for the Independent on Sunday a few weeks ago, and he he made a point of how uh, they're now they have the experience of playing in Brazil. The conditioning did it did actually have a huge, or sorry, the conditions had a huge effect on them. But he also thinks that a game might help them because it allows them to conserve energy in a way other teams mightn't, especially if they have to chase Spain for so long. So I mean, as I say, because of all of that, I still think they're, they're capable of going um, very, very close. And to be honest, I, it's why I'd still have them as favourites. How does the Diego Costa, um, the arrival of Diego Costa change things? Because I have a kind of, I have a notion that really the way that the Spanish team plays is, is kind of militates against the striker, if they use a striker. I mean, this is one of the reasons why they haven't even used one in a lot of their recent games. I mean, they won Euro 2012 without, effectively without a striker, even though Torres got the golden boot, weirdly. But... Um, Diego Costa, I mean, has really thrived in an Atletico Madrid team, which is which is quite direct, which gets the ball into him early uh, as many times as it can in a game. And Spain just aren't going to do that. I mean, you have a guy who's sort of wandering around, and nobody really, he, he's just there as a, as a decoy or a scarecrow. Um, I wonder, is there, is, do you think he's actually going to improve the team? Is he capable of having an impact in a team like this? And also whether his arrival um, has been has been greeted enthusiastically by all of the members of what is, you know, as you were saying, a really tight-knit squad. I mean, a lot of players are, are good friends. You know, they've been together a long time. And suddenly this Brazilian guy comes in and knocks one of them out of the squad. 
Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I actually I asked Silva that exact question, um, but of course, as footballers tend to do, unless they're a very uh, distinct brand of uh, football speakers, he kind of you know talked about Palace shoes and how it's such a welcoming squad and all that. You know, you would you would think it's a possible issue, especially given this squad is known for being famously tight, despite the uh, traditional divisions between say Real and Barca. But I mean, like, the striker one is kind of really interesting one because I mean, if you look at it, that position is probably it's one of the most widely discussed positions in international football history. It's kind of like almost, you know, the playmakers with Italy in 1970, or if they were successful, England's left-sided issue for the last kind of decade, or, you know, throughout the 90s and into the thousands. Um, well, I think it was one reason why Villa fitted that team so well, because, you know, he was able to, he had the fluidity to pass like everyone else, but also had the kind of pace on the turn and kind of fleetness of foot to suddenly switch to all, all that possession into a kind of a slicker attack. Um and I would say Diego Costa is capable of doing that, if maybe not quite in the same fluid way. I mean, if you go back to 2012, one of the one of the reasons that they actually played without a striker, you know, it, it wasn't um, a defensive decision. I think, as a lot of people argued, it was because they didn't have Villa, they didn't have a striker that completely suited them, and it meant that they often had. If they, if they were to play a striker, it meant kind of, you know, a relatively immobile player who couldn't really get involved in the passing and it just kind of blocked away the goal. Whereas when they played a false line there, it, it meant that they drew defences out and created space with the likes of David Silva. And, and I think that's what happened in the final against Italy to a certain extent. But now, I mean, if you, if you, watch, Del, or if you watch Diego Costa play, um, he might not have that kind of uh, velvet touch of Villa. But... You know, with his back, when he has his back to goal, he's capable. He's got that kind of abrasiveness that's capable of occupying two, if not three, defenders. And also, there's that sudden um, acceleration on the on the turn, which is something they've lacked without Villa. So, although I don't think it's a completely perfect fit, there's also an argument that that perfect fit might be beneficial because it just it, it makes them that little less predictable than they than they were. Because if teams sit back twenty yards from goal, as opposition sides tend to do against Spain, then it just it will just break things up that bit more. Were, or I should say, are all those strengths also going to help him fit in at Chelsea where he's done his medical and he's signing? Is that the kind of stuff that Mourinho is looking at? Because he wasn't massively prolific in previous seasons, no. although ruthlessly so this time around. Yeah, absolutely. But I suppose, I mean, the flip side of that is uh, he's at, and I think it's relevant, he, um, Costa's basically at a similar point in his career, and similar, yeah, exactly. And also, he's a striker that he's never been about the goal scoring or been solely about the goal scoring. He does three jobs in one, which basically is what Mourinho has always wanted from a striker. I mean, even when he brought in like Eto, who's someone he loves, but he never used him as a number nine. Whereas he's always wanted someone that's kind of obviously scores, someone that's physical enough to take a battering, and someone that kind of just occupies uh, attention so that the likes of kind of Hazard or previously say Ozil or Ronaldo could kind of flood in behind. Uh, so, you know, if, you know, I suppose the one side, the one question now is his fitness, but if he has that fitness, um, then I would think it's a good signing for Chelsea. And the, the big uh, contrast between all of the other high-profile strikers they've signed, other than Drogba, is that he's on kind of the right side of his career curve. Um, Miguel, I just wanted to ask about Cesc Fabregas. He's obviously going to be part of this squad and he's been a... Um if he he hasn't really been a fixture in the Spain team that's won yeah. these turns, but he has played a big part in each of the victories. I mean, you know, even coming on as a substitute, you know, he's he's had key interventions. He's he's done important yeah. things. Um, 
and he now seems to be unwanted by Barcelona, uh, the yeah. club that, that that tried to take him back. They want Coke. Coke is younger. Coke is the, the the coming man. Fabregas seems to be, and now he's being he's being sort of offered around, and it's like Chelsea uh, maybe aren't even, even interested. In him. Arsenal have already turned up their nose at signing him. Louis van Gaal doesn't write him apparently. I'm I'm thinking what what is wrong with all these clubs? They're insane. This guy's. Brilliant, brilliant attacking the field. Uh, is uh, is my impression of Fabregas outdated? Am I am I thinking of the Arsenal guy? Is this the Wayne Rooney of, of Spanish football, a guy who ultimately has failed to deliver on on all the potential that people thought he had? Um, well, I, I would agree to a certain extent. I think that um, I'm amazed more clubs aren't in from. I remember people aren't like you know taking the opportunity because I, I think he's absolutely top class. But um, I suppose there is an issue where, where it's down to circumstances. I mean, you mentioned it there. And if you look at the kind of the Barca case, I mean, for so long when he was at Arsenal, um, it was considered that uh, Fabregas would be the long-term successor to Xavi. But, you know, basically in those years since, and it kind of it maybe started with his role in the Spain team where, you know, in that Euro 2008 semi-final against Russia, he came on or he, he played in, um, he played as a kind of behind the striker, set up two goals. Um, and from there, he's almost, whereas he, where he was that kind of all-action centre midfielder at Arsenal, He's become much more advanced, and I mean the two teams that would be that you would imagine would um, would be in from United, United and Chelsea. They don't quite need or want that sort of advanced player at the moment. They want someone who is capable of kind of sitting back more um, in the role they would think Fabregas used to occupy. From what I've heard as well, uh, the, the Chelsea hierarchy want Fabregas, the United hierarchy want Fabregas because they see him as a as a big name who's easy to bring in. But neither manager, Van Gaal or Mourinho, are too pushed precisely because of, of those kind of uh, tactical reasons. I mean, you know, you'd, you'd expect Mourinho wants some sort of uh, passer beside Nemanja Matic. But as we've said, Fabregas has become, you know, he, he almost plays in Oscar's position. Yeah, listen, Miguel, we'll leave it there. Thanks very much for backing up my Spain argument and cheers, <laughs> cheers for talking to us. No, cheers, lads. Hair dryers is a metaphor for the current of hot air generated by a furious blast of temper. The hair dryer with which uh, Alex Ferguson was famously associated. He threw a hair dryer, I think, at David Beckham. He threw a hair dryer at David Beckham. Uh, in the, is that right? No, 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 no. One very obvious point about Fabregas, Ken, mm-hmm. and that is that he lacks pace. Now that, that I know it depends what team you're talking about, but one of your arguments about Manchester United this season just gone was that they didn't have really enough fast players. A lot of guys are good feet, the Juan Mata type figure, but they didn't have raw pace and raw power, those kind of things. That's certainly not what Fabregas is going to bring to the table. Yeah, um, but what Fabregas does is he moves the ball very fast. And, you know, I'm thinking... Uh, I, I think of something that... that uh, Robin, here's Robin van Persie. Okay, Robin van Persie is Manchester United centre forward. Here he is talking about Cesc Fabregas. Um, he calls his assists art. He speaks lyrically about the frequency with which Fabregas could put a forward unmarked in front of the keeper. Usually that forward was van Persie. Now, we were talking the other day about Fabregas still being the guy who has played more through balls in the Premier League, in the, most through balls in the Premier League in the last five seasons, even though he hasn't even been playing there for three of those seasons. Yeah. Um, 64 in 52 matches, which is way ahead of Silva. Silva's the next player on the list who's played twice as many well, matches. Are we talking through ball assists here? Through ball. I don't mean assists. 
assist would be through balls. through balls where you know basically the ball passes between defenders to a striker or almost to a striker it's amazing that nobody else has gotten near that it's incredible I mean Silva is a fantastic player and he's he, he hasn't caught Fabregas yet even though he's played nearly I think twice as many games in that in that time here's uh, Van Persie says Sesk is slow you know with us, he was one of the slowest, and yet he was the fastest of us all. He always thinks two seconds ahead. I'd sometimes think, why doesn't the opponent take the ball from him? Then, peep, says, this must be some Dutch onomatopoeia. Peep, he does a little faint. At training once, I'm running three or four meters behind him. I caught up and thought, now I'll get you. But with the point of his boot, he gives peep, a tiny little pass for a one-two. That gives him another meter and a half. I catch up with him again, but... Peep. He suddenly turns away with a body paint. So irritating. We strikers could always expect a deep ball from him. Most midfielders look sideways first and then maybe forward. Sask always looked forward first. That's Van Persie talking to Simon Cooper a couple of years back about Fabregas. He is slow. He always has been. But I don't think you get that impression from the football that his teams play. That is just about it from us for today. I hope you've enjoyed the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast. Don't zone out just yet. I know this is, I know how it works, right? At the end of these shows. We all know how it works. Presenters start wrapping up and plugging a couple of things. You hit the pause button and head straight over to Spotify. But just hear me out for the last few seconds. We've got a great show out there from earlier on today. It's already available. You can listen to Shane Kern and Jason Sherlock. They're in brilliant form. And we focus on the last World Cup to be played in South America. The World Cup with the biggest black mark beside it, probably 1978 Argentina winning on home soil amid delirious scenes, but also backed by their military dictatorship at that time. Check out irishtimes.com forward slash podcast for loads of other great shows with the Irish Times. We've some very big second captains related news coming out tomorrow, so please keep an ear out for that. Ken, as I mentioned, is off to Brazil on Monday, so we'll get a full World Cup preview out of him before he heads off. And that's pretty much it. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Alan. Thank you for listening and even for paying attention right to the bitter end. Take care. Cheers. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. <laughs>